Hey, Rock and Roll Bedheads, it's Brian, and have we got an opportunity for you. You want to come party in our hometown and see some of the biggest names in rock and roll. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, Pantera, Queens of the Stone Age, Weezer, Limp Bizkit, Megadeth, Rancid, Turnstile. I'm just reading the names that are in big print. This is the biggest rock festival in America. It is called Louder Than Life. It happens in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th of this year at the Highland Festival Grounds. And we've got your tickets. All you've got to do is go to our website, wearethestoryguys.com. Right there in the left-hand column, you're going to see a link for Win Louder Than Life tickets. Click that link, fill out a little bit of information, and let us know, out of all those bands I mentioned in the many, 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 many that I, I didn't, uh, out of the lineup for Louder Than Life, who are the bands you most want to see? Name five, send us your five, and you will be in the running to win two four-day general admission passes to this rock and roll fest. Uh, it's going to be a really good time, and I am really excited that we can give you this opportunity. I'll make it even easier than that. Just go into the show notes right now and click the link that says win Louder Than Life tickets. It's that easy. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Louder Than Life and Danny Wimmer Presents. And now, let's keep thinking and talking about rock and roll. It's time for the show. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, what's up? It's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome, ladies and germs. To rock and roll bedtime stories at your home for rumor in your window and all the fun rock and roll stories that you've always wanted to know about and you never got to meet two of us who just sit around at parties and talked about this anyway and we made a podcast <laughs> what are your general thoughts and feelings when it comes to the song we built this city <laughs> <laughs> did you read it was this i mean i don't know how old it is but it was stereo gum or one of those things that had an article basically with sort of the hypothesis that it's the worst song ever. And then it has <laughs> first, I, I, I have that feeling about it. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and even at a younger age i've always just been confused by it for multiple reasons like one of them it, it never struck me as a rock and roll song right right it, well they didn't write it so it was oh. it, this could have gone to somebody else so so freaking bernie toppin and martin page wrote it wait 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 and yeah <laughs> bernie yes. toppin yeah. as an elton john and bernie toppin yeah someone asked bernie toppin what knee deep in the hoopla meant and he said <laughs> nothing <laughs> Yeah, they wrote it, and it said that their version is a little darker oh. about L.A. music oh. being shut down, oh. but they didn't write all, like, you know. That makes a lot of sense. I was very confused by that song and that band because I was I, I don't understand what the hell their name is. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was originally Jefferson Airplane. Jeff, oh, it's Jefferson Starship and then Starship. Well, right. So they were definitely... Different incarn- incarnations of that band, I'd well, say. Well, that's what I'm figuring out, right? This has all been brought on, I should explain. I just jumped right in. A letter from Kurt. Remember, you can always write the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Kurt wrote to say, I heard this tale one time that a guy in Jefferson Starship thought the band's new album was so terrible that he stole it. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> 
Okay. I have not heard this story. I'm glad you brought this to the playground. Before we even get there, we got to go back and figure out what this band used to be. Because when you talk about rock and roll transitions and a band changing from one thing to another, like I think of Fleetwood Mac, right? I think of maybe Genesis or even Journey. But this might be the wildest transition to me because this band who who are doing these tweaked Bernie Toppin tunes in the mid 80s, uh, they pretty much created psychedelic rock. Yeah, and they... I would say, I don't think it was ever really officially said, but they're kind of the house band for the Fillmore West. Like Bill Graham booked them all the time. It's they're kind of the San Francisco sound. The San Fran scene often gets sort of ignored, right? Like not ignored, but like I think when you think of music in the 60s in America, you're likely to get New York, which is like Greenwich Village, or LA, which is Laurel Canyon, sort of separate from this, right? But the San Francisco sound, Jefferson Airplane becomes a big part of that, and it is all attributed to Rubber Soul by the Beatles. Basically, answering this question of like, if you took the Stones and Dylan and put them in a blender, what would that sound like? I actually found this quote uh, from a San Francisco historian named Charles Perry. He says that in San Fran neighborhoods, quote, you could party hop all night and hear nothing but Rubber Soul, and that, quote, more than ever, the Beatles were the soundtrack of the Height Ashbury Berkeley and the whole circuit. But in San Francisco itself, there was this group of musicians who had this additional sensibility based more in like extreme music expertise. A lot of the musicians playing the scene would cite John Coltrane as much as they did the Beatles, which it, is pretty heavy. Well, really, that's a that's it. a good way of explaining it too, because people who love the possibilities of rock and roll while feeling a duty to honor the freedom and experimentation of something like jazz, that is sort of its own separate thing. And doing something like that usually takes some people leading the scene who are not afraid to think very differently. And so the first character you get in this Jefferson, we'll just call it the Jefferson story, uh, is Marty Balin. As a kid, it's realized he's an autistic individual, okay? And if you look at his story, this is his superpower because he is very determined and he doesn't care about the traditional ways of doing things. He's putting out music at age age 20 and no one's buying it. So he decides that what he needs is a venue where people can hear his music. Now, if one was to think traditionally, they would go to other people's venues and beg them to let him play. But not Marty. He builds his own venue. He takes a pizza place that's going out of business, gets financing to buy it, calls it The Matrix, and then... He creates a band to play at the Matrix. Right. The venue itself becomes the center of all of this because it's a smart move to own a club if you can afford it. And because if you can go out and recruit band members and you have a standing gig to offer them because you can basically become the house band of the club that you you own. And, and that's what he does. He just goes and finds the best people in the scene. One of the first people he gets is this dude named Paul Kantner, who's going to become a big part of this story. But he picks up a bunch of people from different groups, and there's all these things just starting to happen around this time. There's this real scene growing. One of the things he knows he wants is a female singer. So he sees this local jazz singer named Signe Tully Anderson and convinces her to join the band. So the band really gets traction fast. It's August of 65 when they debut at that venue that Marty has bought. And that night, there's a model in the audience, and that's Grace Slick. Uh, and she'll be inspired <laughs> to start her own band with her husband and her brother. And that band was called The Great Society. And they'll eventually be on a bill with Airplane later that fall. And that's how they, they meet. And over the year, Jefferson Airplane does really well. There's offers from record labels. And they go with RCA. And by 66, 
a year later, they have an LP out. And right before that record is released, Signe Tolly Anderson, she's been doing, it's a dual vocal thing at the beginning, right? So it's her and Marty are singing. And she announces that she's going to leave the band because she's had a kid. She realizes it's not super conducive for being in the group. And they were like, okay, that's fine, but give us a few months. So let's see if we can find a replacement. It's that girl Grace from the Great Society, right? But but she's not their first call. Yeah, it was Sherry Snow is like the who, first person. Who's like, she said no. Yeah, she's in this other group with her husband, who you have not heard of. It's a folk duo. But things are going pretty well for them. So And, and you know, it's a little weird to like tell your husband especially in the 60s. No, I'm not going to play music with you. I'm going to play with a bunch of these other hippie dudes who are doing drugs all the time. Uh, So she says no, and then they call Grace from the Great Society, who's also, for what it's worth, been playing with her current husband. Uh, But this is is Grace from her autobiography. Uh, Quote, it was sometime in 66, and I was up in the balcony at the Avalon Ballroom watching the crowd down below as... Uh, the crowd was moving out after a Jefferson Airplane concert, and Jack Cassidy, who's the bass player in Airplane, comes up to talk to me for a while. The rock and roll community was small. We all knew each other. We all went to clubs together, as we've already established, and we all watched each other play. So I was accustomed to hanging out and chatting with the guys from Airplane, so this is not weird that Jack Cassidy walks up to her. But that night, seemingly out of nowhere, Jack looks at me and says, what do you think about singing with us? And my reaction to Jack was a calm yeah, that might work, which was me trying to be cool. But inside, I was thinking, oh, my God, are you kidding? I'm going to be on the fucking varsity squad. (laughs) (laughs) So grace is the secret ingredient, right? And there's there's a quote that Bill Thompson, who's the early manager of the band, and this is so, this is spot on. Nobody had two singers like Marty and Grace. There's a great quote from Marty, too, where he says, we had this it, chemistry that was so intense between us that people thought we were fucking. I mean, that's not what he says, but that's basically the quote. Um, I mean, pe- most people thought we were married or something or having a great affair, but it was just on stage. You know, we could play together really, really well. And interestingly, yeah. I think, you know, Grace will have her rendezvous with, um, with at least a few members of the band, uh, but Marty is not one of them. Uh, at least as the historical record stands. The thing about Grace, she's not having a great singer is that she brings songs. Can't right. beat it. The, yeah, in the Great Society, you can find it on Spotify, and you can hear it. There's Somebody to Love and White Rabbit are on there. So well, it, um, it, she was a very great addition to that band. I, I just said this a second ago, but I do want to make sure it's clear that Jefferson Airplane was into doing a lot of drugs. All of them were. Uh, and I bring that up because Someone to Love, which is what it's originally called when the Great Society does it, it gets changed to somebody to love, uh, the version you know. Uh, but it was written by Grace's brother-in-law, Darby, because <laughs> based on a true story of when he was coming off an acid trip and realized his girlfriend was cheating on him. And Darby gets asked the difference later between the Great Society version and the airplane version, and he says, quote, I'm not saying that our version was better. But there was a sharper contrast between the verse and the chorus. Everybody who heard it said, this is a hit. And as soon as the airplane heard it, those guys were obviously also thinking that it would be a hit. Yeah, but the airplane version definitely has more of an edge. If you listen to it, too, it's kind of like garagey. Well, and fun side note, do you know who produced the Great Society record? His name is Sly Stone. Well, great reminder, trying to not get distracted by the larger San Fran music scene here, but it may be worth pointing out like who is in this scene with airplane at this time. Can you give us like a, a short list of the biggest names? They're a bunch of nobodies. So Sly Stone, <laughs> uh, the flaming groovies, Moby grape, grateful dead journey, oh Santana, Steve Miller band. Oh my God. And then, then big brother and the holding company and Janice. 
But Airplane is actually often at the center of this conversation. December of 66, they're in a Newsweek article about the San Francisco music scene. And it this article then spawns a bunch of other articles by national publications, and it starts to spread the term hippie. You know the backstory on where hippie came from? No. It's totally interesting. It's It came from a gossip, a gossip columnist at the San Francisco uh, Chronicle. Okay. And they shortened the word hipster to talk more really? about a counterculture advocate, which was a hippie. <laughs> so hipster up to that point was used for like jazz and bebop people. Oh, yeah. It wasn't yeah. used for like people that liked rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Hipster okay. was that person. So they, they basically changed it to be kind of, you know, what fits the counterculture in San Francisco. So in, in the research, uh, I, I found this article. Like Newsweek got sold in 2013. I don't know if you realize that. And there was this writer named Hendrik Hertzberg who worked for Newsweek in San Francisco during the late 60s. And he explains that they actually had a quote-unquote bureau. Like they had an office space and like four guys that just wrote stuff out of San Francisco for Newsweek in the 60s. And he wrote this retrospective of The New Yorker about working there. And it, it's it's in the show notes. It's long. Totally worth the read. Just for the color, but he's able to really capture what this San Francisco music scene was like at the time. Let me give you a couple snippets. Quote, music that was great but not old was happening at the Fillmore and the Avalon Ballroom, the Philharmonic and the Carnegie Hall of Psychedelic Rock. That's what he calls it. I spent most Friday and Saturday nights at the Fillmore where every patron's hair was always a centimeter or two longer than it had been the weekend before and the popular local bands like Jefferson Airplane, The Dead, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger, service country joe and the fish were still unknown east of the sierra nevadas bill graham usually paired this is what you were talking about bill graham usually paired a local band often jefferson airplane with a tasty import from la like the birds or chicago like muddy waters or new york like the velvet underground admission was three dollars and fifty cents and there was always free apples in the lobby there were no seats, just benches around the perimeter of the dance floor, and the light show, which would be liquid projections pulsing with the rhythm of the music, you know, like a Windows 95 screensaver, was like nothing anybody had ever seen before. Or a Flaming Lips concert, let's be honest, <laughs> where that was kind of ripped off from. So Bill Graham, if yeah, we can, there's yeah. a, there, here's a San Francisco musical legend, and we haven't talked about him at all. You're right. Arguably one of the most important San Francisco musical legends. Uh, we've talked about him on the show, which I haven't talked about in this episode. I- Impresario, concert promoter, creates the mold for a certain type of rock and roll business, right? But he becomes important to the story because he takes over as manager for Airplane in 67. Which is far out when you think about it. So 67 is a huge year for airplane they released their second album but their first with grace it's surrealistic pillow that one that people know about jerry garcia is not credited as this but he is understood to be a shadow producer really um and then it launches them yeah 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 and it launches them into the rock scene and that stays on the charts for a year it's a huge record they play the monterey pop festival which is my favorite festival in the history of all festivals. And they do Ed Sullivan and the Smothers Brothers, so they're on TV too. Well, and a couple other things start to happen in the next year for this band, right? They, they start paying attention to the stuff that's coming out of Britain, and so their music starts to get heavier. They're listening to Cream, they're listening to Hendrix, and Grace and Paul Kantner, who is like recruit number one when Marty starts the band, they start pushing Airplane in this musical direction. Now, this pisses Balin off. Because he likes to write ballads. They put out the record After Bathing at Baxter's, and this is the follow-up to Surrealistic Pillow, and it does not 
do great. And then there's this dust up. And I couldn't find a lot of details on this, but it's just said that Grace and Bill Graham do not get along. And at some point, Grace throws down an ultimatum and says that if they don't get a different manager, then she's going to leave the band. And at this point, I think the other guys are smart enough to realize that Grace has been key ingredient to their success. So they dump Bill Graham, and then they go on tour in Europe with the Doors. Which, think about it, wow. Um, and if I could be self-referential for a moment, if you remember the David Crosby episode of this show, Freebase, he had that song, <laughs> Triad. Oh, yeah, Triad! Uh, it's back! Right. It's the three. Yeah, it's the let's. We haven't talked about a song about a threesome in a while, and here we go. And the birds thought it was too not safe for work for their records. So the next airplane record, which is called Crown of Creation, is where they record it. Yeah. And then after that record is where we start to really get to the core story of today the riffs and the transformation that turned Jefferson Airplane into something very, very different. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Biscuit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. This is from a New York Times article in May of 77, okay? Dolly Parton, who's in the midst of a run at the bottom line, has had throat trouble for years. She's been forced to cancel concerts, undergo two-week stints of total silence, and may one day have to face that bane of all singers, throat surgery. But she's hardly alone. Fleetwood Mac had to cancel two weeks at the beginning of its current tour because of Stevie Nicks' hoarseness. Bonnie Raitt, Harry Nelson, and Grace Slick have had similar problems. The ailment affecting all of these singers is called nodes, on the vocal cords. A node, says Dr. Edward A. Cantor of Beverly Hills, is a small tumification like a rounded corn on the vocal cord, a swelling or a growth. It is non-cancerous, benign, but it is something you have to check. Hoarseness for more than six weeks is cancer until proven otherwise. Yeah, and it always sounds scary as um, any person that uses their voice for anything. If there's any problem with your notes, well, you know that it's something serious. Right. And the doctor in the article goes on to say that what he prescribes for these issues is, is one or a combination of three things. Cortisone, surgery, those are especially if it's severe, but first and foremost, rest. So in, in 69, Grace has vocal trouble and the band hits pause. And it's during this pause that two of the recruits from the early days with Marty Balin, Jorma Kakonen and Jack Cassidy, they start to put a little extra focus on a side project that they create sort of to just fill time. And initially when they start, they're like playing sort of renditions of Jefferson Airplane songs acoustically and stuff. They call it hot shit. But then RCA Victor is like, you can't call it hot shit. So they call it hot tuna. Hot tuna, that's right. And so I know we 
we need to be careful not to confuse the story by throwing around all the names of all the band members that go in and out of airplane, which is kind of crazy. But these two guys we had talked about so far, longtime members of the band and old pals who grew up together in D.C. And so it's natural that they form this acoustic thing on the side, even though they started to call it holy shit. Hot shit. <laughs> Sorry. Hot shit. Holy I don't know. Shit. Holy shit. That might have stuck. Yeah, Jorma and Jack, yeah. right? So uh, the band starts, this band that they start, Hot Tuna, starts to get some traction. And it's going to coexist alongside Airplane for a little while, for the next few years. And, and just to sort of get us where we're headed, we can do some quick, broad strokes on what happens next in the next few years to the Airplane lineup. I bet you you can probably walk us through this. <clears throat> um, so they play Woodstock. Uh-huh. And then cue the guiding light Days of Our Lives music. So Grace <laughs> and Paul Katner, who's the bass player, they have a kid together. Uh-huh. Janice dies. Oh. Um, and then yeah. Marty started Airplane as his house band for his club, is clearly in the middle, like in the crosshairs of Grace oh, yeah, and Paul, yeah, 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 who yeah, are yeah. parents and lovers. And then and, the other two guys who started the band. So he's like, he's the, as they yeah. call it on Survivor, he's the swing vote. You have two clear camps. Right. And he's sort of the outcast stuck in the middle. And when Janice dies, he starts thinking that maybe he shouldn't drink or do drugs as hmm, much. I wonder why and he starts why, why doing he yoga. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, they, no, no, no faster way to kill a rock band than to start doing yoga. This makes him even less of a fit for the, the band. And so all these factors with the, drug use and making the next album together makes it difficult and, and marty leaves the band in 71 a month after he leaves grace slams her car into a wall in a tunnel near the golden gate bridge like why do we not have a major motion picture about jefferson airplane do you know why she ran into the wall no why her and the baby daddy were drag racing her, they, <laughs> what the they actual they fuck drag racing. Are, you, are you serious yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so so hospital uh, yeah, messes yeah, up her schedule. Oh my and god! And then dude. things aren't going well. Now we've got someone that's departed. We've got the drag race race injury. Um, <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Christ. So things are this. So this is like the soap opera has begun. Well, and what's crazy is they still exist for a little while. There's like three more years here, but things are never really the same. You pointed out this division, right? This married couple, old friends division. It gets deeper, and these other projects are also developing. So it, it creates this natural dissension and, and, and break. We talked about Hot Tuna, but when the tuna formation is happening in the early 70s, Paul Kantner, recruit number two, the baby daddy to Grace's baby, is putting together a solo project. But this is classic music scene stuff where he just pulls in all his buddies. So this solo project, quote unquote, has obviously the woman he's having a child with, Grace is involved, but it also has David Crosby, Graham Nash, Mickey Hart, Jerry Garcia. They're all part of this. And we won't get caught up in the nitty gritty, but what basically starts to happen is Paul's solo albums and eventually a Grace solo album that he starts to try to help her pull out of her herself. Uh, they start becoming the base for creating a totally different band of musicians um, because there's like schedule conflicts and personality things. And there's just, so they, they pull people in and what, slowly happens is they pull in most of the band because this band and again we're being careful about like mentioning every single member of the band because there's a lot of them but like it's running at a capacity of like seven to eight people most of the time and we've been talking about four or five of them and so there's just like other people who are here what what starts to happen when they're doing this solo project stuff is they pull in everybody except the hot tuna guys. And so you've got most of the band, but it's now sort of a different band because they're starting to do stuff that Paul, and we'll talk about this 
is really leading leading fully. So it's, you know, Marty Balin had some influence in the band because he started it. Grace had some influence in the band because she's a secret ingredient. But Paul becomes the driving force because he's there from the beginning. And now he has this vision and, and he's sort of the sole creator of a lot of the music they're making now. And we haven't talked much about this next guy, but before and after the brief stint with Bill Graham managing Airplane, they were managed by a friend of theirs named Bill Thompson who seems to have been a pretty awesome manager. Which we don't talk about good managers. (laughs) It's not not usually a subject on this show, the good managers. No, but he is important here because he gives them some decent business advice as this new band starts to form. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Now, this is something you and I know about, the age-old concept of brand equity. Uh, It's most of the same people from Airplane. They've been playing a lot of, and they formed around... uh, Paul's solo albums um, and his solo album one in particular is called blows against the empire and they sing about this group of people escaping from earth in a hijacked starship this comes more into the story later but Paul is always writing sort of conceptually and he's a, a fan of sci-fi and, and so there's always these big ideas so with a nudge from the manager they decide to merge the recognizable Jefferson from airplane and put it with this kindred non-earthbound travel vehicle that they've been singing about. And this is how they become Jefferson Starship because it's a demarcation of a slightly different pursuit. We're not exactly Jefferson Airplane anymore, but we're kind of Jefferson Airplane. And uh, it really just morphs into this other project. And things were great for Starship for a while. So much that Marty comes back. Yay! First he like guests, but then he actually he actually rejoins. And there are a few albums, but this whole time we've been sort of glancing over the drugs and the alcohol that were part of the equation. They start to become the whole equation for Grace Slick. Well, and this could be an episode on its own, maybe. The the great takedown of Jefferson Airplane in nineteen seventy-eight. Um, I think they are touring as Starship at this point. They're there to play an amphitheater, and they're there with Atlanta Rhythm Section and Leo Kaki. And Grace does not feel good. So there's there's two days in question here. So the first day, Grace does not feel good. They get a doctor, and he says it's appendicitis, but he's like, you're not in any desperate way. You could probably get up and sing if you wanted. And she's like, hell no. So she cancels. But they cancel while everyone is in the arena. Professional advice here from a couple of guys who haven't technically been in a rock band but are around a lot of rock bands and read about a lot of rock bands. Don't do that. Don't do that. If everybody's in the arena, try to do the show. Uh, So they go out and say, listen, we're going to reschedule this in a few days. And the audience is freaking pissed. And they start to riot. And I think they think that there's no better way to tell a band that their rescheduled date will not be adequate. No better way to tell them that than to break and steal their equipment. They literally lose a big chunk of their equipment. I found, so again, not to confuse people about who's in the band when, but right when they start Starship, they bring in this teenager who's like a guitar prodigy from the San Francisco scene. I found this really cool interview, stuffed it to the end of the show notes. You know, he didn't get to talk a whole lot. So like at some point in the last, I don't know, 10 years, somebody sat down and interviewed him about his time in this band. And he tells this story. They think that they have lost all of these guitars. And years later, through a similar situation as to what we talked about with Randy Bachman on an old episode about somebody calling him and being like, I think I have your guitar. He actually gets a couple of these guitars back 
from this riot in the middle of Germany. But that's just night one. So wow. they now have to rent equipment for night two to go over to yeah. Hamburg. And here's here's what happens in Hamburg. Grace drinks a lot way early in the day. And she's so fucked up. She just basically knows they're in Germany. So she goes on stage and starts being like, hey, who won World War II? And then she starts doing Hail Hitlers on the stage in Germany. Oh, man. I never heard that. It's awful. Well, and so that didn't work out. That didn't work out. And now they're in this awkward position where the father of her child, who has now sort of taken ownership of this band, is elected to be the one to tell her she's out. They basically just treat it like a corporate endeavor and they, they ask her to resign. And I knew she left the band now ish in our story here, but I didn't know it had anything to do with saying, What's up, Hitler? Um, so <laughs> who crazy. won World War II? Uh, so, yeah. 1979, there's no Grace, there's no Marty. Marty's out at this point. So it's Paul's Machine. Mm-hmm. And they put out an album with a little song on it called Jane. Yeah. Man, I remember that song as a kid and not putting it together with White Rabbit or Somebody to Love It All. It was know. but it was on like it was on like the same radio station people would may not know it, AO like album oriented rock radio is or something, but like I could hear Judas Priest, like you got another thing coming, like in the early eighties, and I'd hear Jane also. Well right. Also, it's the big it's the beginning song in cocaine beer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we have to make mention of that very current pop culture reference. Uh, yeah. So you bring up a great point when you describe it that way, that you could hear it next to all these other songs. This is back to my opening you know, argument here about this band. Part of the reason I've never really been able to engage with them is I found all of that confusing. So I've got White Rabbit and Somebody to Love. And then I've got this song, which is a rock song. And then we've already talked about We Built the City that comes later. And somehow this is the same band? Like, that's why it's so confusing. Because, I mean, I will say, Jane is a rocker. And I want to be clear, for those who, who mm, just mm. have a Star, Jefferson Starship as a blind spot, they are a successful band. That They're not a one-off band. This is not, Jane is not their only hit. It's it, they, they have a handful. This one has sustained and, and is in movies like Cocaine Bear now. But... They do really well. They put out a bunch of records. Like I think by the end they do like eleven records or something. All of them are selling pretty well at this point. They're getting in somewhere into like the top twenty or thirty in most cases, at least. And we get to this point in any band's history that stretches into the early eighties. We talk about it all the time on this show. We get to MTV. Well, if you think about in the sixties, they were like they birthed counterculture. But if you were around right when MTV started, it definitely was part of the counterculture, too, because that didn't exist. You couldn't watch videos at, or 24 hours a day. So they embraced that, it, the channel in its infancy. And, you know, because it's edgy and they like they were totally into making videos. Well, I know. And it's so weird, well, too, because <laughs> now we just think about, you know, ridiculousness being on in reruns on MTV. Right. But like MTV, when it started, was not a corporate, you know, corporately owned by Viacom or whatever. Right. It was this weird thing. And we talked a little bit about this um, on, on the show. I think I think when we talked about Billy Squire, about how he just lived there 
uh, in New York down the street from MTV and go hang out because it was where the cool kids hung out, right? It was just this countercultural place to be. And most of you, you said it, right? Most of Starship is into making rock videos, but remember, we do have this holdover. We have Paul, who is now taking control of this band, and he's, you know, he's been there since. 1963 or something? Let's run through the history of the key players one more time. Marty Balin, Grace Slick, Paul Kantner, and the two buddies from DC who form Hot Tuna. But know that when Starship transition happens, the Jefferson Starship transition happens, there's people coming in and out of the band. We've already said Marty Balin's in for some. Grace Slick actually comes back again for a couple albums here in the early 80s. But Paul's always been there, the consistent thread. And we get to 84, we get to MTV, and now they're in the studio working on what's going to end up being the eighth Jefferson Starship record, and it is an album called Nuclear Furniture. Yeah, and there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen here uh, for this record, and things really start to fall apart for the band. There's this really good piece I found in the show notes, Murdoch. Uh, it's a, it, a site called Alan's Ar- Album Archives. And if you go read critically about nuclear furniture, for the most part, people have a lot of negative things to say about it. <laughs> um, but he has an affection for it. And so he writes about it both critically, but also with sort of a warmth. And, and here's, I'm just going to read a little bit from what he writes. Nuclear furniture is where all the juggling balls fall down in the band are straining at opposite ends of the leash. In one corner, you've got pure pop songs provided by Mickey and Craig and Pete and even Grace. And over in the other corner sits Paul's concept album about the Cold War. And this is where things get strange because Paul is literally writing a concept album and the rest of the band are submitting pop songs. And they're just back and forth at each other's throats trying to figure out how to fit which songs where on this record. And some of this gets blamed on Ron Nevison, right? Oh, well, great. I'm glad you brought him up. Uh, Paul definitely blames him. Uh, Ron Nevison, explain who that guy is. Yeah, so he's an engineer who really made a name for himself with the Who's Quadrophenia. And he's worked on, I don't want to get, there's so many records, but he worked on the Nightlife, then Lizzie record, and then... Um, he worked on the first three Bad Company records, and he engineered Zeppelin's physical graffiti. Jesus Christ. Now, he's no slouch. But in 84, you know, he's got his craft out, and he's getting pretty slick in the studio with these guys, right? And of all the nice things we've said about Kantner, there are some not nice things that can be said about him. I always have to, whenever we're talking about San Francisco music, I've got to go to friend of the show, Joel Selvin. Joel Selvin is on the record describing uh, Kantner this way. Quote, a sometimes prickly, often sarcastic musician who keeps his own counsel and routinely enrages old bandmates. Uh, Marty Balin is even on the record as telling Billboard's Gary Graff, quote, he was a hard-headed guy to get along with and wouldn't do anybody else's music. We had to do what he could do, so that's what we all did eventually. We pretty much just did Paul's music because that's all he wanted to do. So imagine all these ingredients coming together. You've got an album with a split personality. You've got a guy going through professional burnout. And that guy happens to be a hard-headed visionary. And so things are really tough in the studio. And Kanner keeps voicing dissent. So Nevison will will be like, hey guys, listen to this cool mix I made. And Kanner hates it. And he keeps telling them, no, 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 we have to change the mix. And I read a little bit more into this that what is really happening is it does have to do with the fact that Kantner's songs are long. And so he keeps being like, no, 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 
I need all seven minutes of this song or whatever. And they're like, well, we'll give you four. And he's like, give me five. You know, they're like negotiating, trying to make all this work. Nevison comes in, shows them this is the finished record. I've put my gloss on it. And Cantor thinks it sucks. He just is, it's too glossy and it doesn't have enough of his work on it because it's basically two different projects, right? That they've crammed together under this moniker of nuclear furniture, which was supposed to be his big statement on the Cold War. And there's a really interesting thing said in this piece on Alan's album archives uh, when he's, you know, showing his affection for the record is it's like, think about this from Paul's perspective. So he's already been the counterculture guy. And, and arguably in the early eighties, there is way more for the counterculture to be upset about. Right. You know, if we look back historically with the cold war and with everything that's happening with the Reagan administration moving in. And so it's even worse than the Nixon and Watergate, which is what they were pissed off about in the first part, right? So you've got this guy trying to dig into that because that's who he is at his core, and he's he's being kept from doing that by the rest of the band. And he starts to feel really pissed off because he feels like some of these guys should be loyal to him because he's sort of the boss. He's always been there, and no one will speak up for him at these sessions with Nevison. And so... Here we get to the we get to the 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 big scene. He has to prove he has to show them how important this is, Murdoch. He has to prove to them that he, there is no other way. And so, what do you do if a guy brings you a finished album and you don't like it, and he's going to put your name on it? What do you do? You go take it and hide it in the basement of your house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What did he do? Yes, kind of. He puts it in his car and starts driving around San Francisco and with left. it. <laughs> and left. Yeah. And then... He steals the out. masters. He literally takes the master recordings, puts them in the back of his car, and drives away. And keeps them, like, holds them hostage for a while. It's unclear to me how long, but he legit does this. Yeah, and this is where Paul leaves the band. Paul sues the band. <laughs> And that's how he gets Starship. Okay. That's how Jefferson, that's how Minus Jefferson happens I, if, right there, right? If you're following yeah. along at home, you just got a perfect breakdown. So you've got Airplane from basically 65 until 70, uh, 72, 73, 74. And then it slowly morphs fully into Star Jefferson Starship. Jefferson Starship lasts for a decade. And then in 85, it officially becomes just Starship. And when they become just Starship, they are letting these outside influences in who are going to you know, promise them success. Say, we can get big hits on the radio. Let us hire you some songwriters. They hire guys like Bernie Toppin. And they score what has probably been their longest, most enduring hit. We built this city in 1985 without any of the original members that you know from Jefferson Airplane. Quite possibly, in some people's minds, the worst song ever. <laughs> when <But> I, <laughs> I, I mentioned that a guitarist that they that teenage guitarist they brought into Starship, and in this interview, again, it's a, it's a really good read. Uh, he explains that like he basically they're like, "Why'd you leave the band?" And he's like, "Well, there wasn't really a position for a guitar player at a certain point." He's like, "All the we kept making these songs, and they didn't have guitar parts." And so they just didn't need me. So I was like, ah, I'm having a kid. 
and I'm growing up on my own now. And he he went on to just do like a bunch of acoustic guitar stuff. I mean, one last note about this, right, is that Jefferson Airplane sort of serves as this real-time example of what happens to the counterculture. I read a piece that sort of walked through this, and I thought this was really interesting, right? It, as weird as this story is, you sort of actually can point to it as here is this generation that was very idealistic at the end of the 60s and gives into this idea of, you know, the supremacy of America and idealized wealth in the mid 80s. Um, and, and I mean, you know, I think it's sort of interesting to say you can see these distinct phases of this band and you can watch sort of with the political backdrop behind it, what happens to a whole generation of people who grew up taking psychedelic drugs and then deciding to go ahead and put on the suit and head into work. It's a pretty good story. And, um, yes, he stole the fucking masters. If you have a, a something you need from us, if you have a story you'd like for us to investigate, a rumor that you've heard, uh, send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys@gmail.com. Remember, um, if you hit the show notes, there's a link to uh, register for your chance to win tickets to Louder Than Life Music Festival uh, in yeah. Louisville, Kentucky this September. See tons of legendary bands over four days. It's going to be absolutely incredible. We got tickets to give away. Check that out. Uh, Instagram.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, Patreon.com slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories for bonus newsletters and bonus episodes. Whew. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Mm. And you guys keep telling stories. And thanks for listening. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.